I am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Hello and welcome to the Future of Asia podcast. In honor of International Women's Day, today's episode will have us look at the state of gender parity in Asia and the role businesses can play in advancing greater diversity, equity, and inclusion moving forward. We are joined today by two of McKinsey's most preeminent experts on gender equality and inclusion. Koylan Ellengrad, a senior partner and director at the McKinsey Global Institute, and Anumat Gavkar, a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute. Before we jump in, perhaps it's best to take a step back and have a holistic view of where we stand on gender equality today across Asia and around the world. Koylan, Anu? Absolutely, Angela. I think if you look around the world, what we know is that gender equality is good for business. As we've done global research, companies that are in the top quartile of gender diversity are 25% more likely to outperform from a total returns to shareholders perspective. And companies that are ethnically diverse are 36% more likely to outperform. So we know that diversity, gender and ethnic diversity is correlated with better financial returns. We also know that there's a significant opportunity in women matching men's participation in the workforce more equally. Around the world, that is roughly a $12 trillion opportunity about 11% of global GDP, significant. And in Asia Pacific, it's actually greater than that. It's 12% of Asia Pacific GDP or $4.5 trillion in in the Asia Pacific. And of course, that varies quite a bit across countries in Asia, right? Asia is home to the majority of the world's population. So lots of diversity across countries within that as well. If you look at not just gender equality in the workplace, but what Anu and I have done over the years through a piece of work that we call Power of Parity is looked at both the workplace and equality opportunity and also correlated that with the social equality of women around the world. And what we find is that countries that have captured more of the economic opportunity of women participating more equally in the workplace also tend to capture more of that from a social perspective. And so the takeaway there, as we look at over 125 countries around the world, where we looked at this data over time, is that if you want to capture more of that financial and economic opportunity from gender equality in the workplace, you have to address some of these social and environmental challenges and gaps for women as well. And when you take that not just from the overall workplace, but then to more senior levels of leadership, as we look around executive teams or management teams around the world primarily, There's a lot of variability in the percentage of leadership teams that are made up by women. So, for example, it varies from sort of Norway, Australia, Sweden at the top end of the spectrum, closing in on about 30% of leadership teams and roles being held by women, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, that is three or so percent in Japan, 5% of executive team seats in India. 8% in Mexico, Germany, Brazil, et cetera. So there's wide variability, lots of opportunity across countries in Asia to step up at that most senior level of leadership. I think it's really interesting when you 
in some ways compare and contrast what gender equality means globally with the way it's panning out in the Asia and Asia-Pacific region. And as Quaylen pointed out, I think first and foremost, the value at stake in improving gender equality is just as large, in fact, larger at $4.5 trillion if uh, we approached or improved gender equality in work at a rapid pace that some countries have actually demonstrated. So that's a very large number in a region that's rapidly growing and undergoing several deep transformations in its economy as well as in its society. But the diversity is truly very high and very interesting because you have at one end of the spectrum a country like India where women account for maybe less than 20% of national GDP because fewer women participate in the economy and then many of them work in relatively lower productivity and lower paid jobs. But on the other hand, you have other countries, you have Singapore, you have China, and these, in countries like this, women account for over 40% of national GDP and the rate of participation as well, their share of the workforce is very much higher. So there's the whole spectrum and it's also a region that's seen a lot of change and has seen new structural forces, namely technology, shifting the dynamics and opening up opportunities for women in many significant ways. For example, women-owned businesses in e-commerce are a much greater share of all businesses compared to women's share in offline MSMEs. So in some countries, we've seen women-owned online businesses generating 35% of total e-commerce revenues, for example, compared to just 15% in the offline world. So there is plenty of scope for women to play a much more significant role in Asia's economies. And this is something that uh, we're going to see, I think, a lot of innovation around and becomes particularly important in the post-COVID world as we look at various forms of digitization and automation more and more rapidly transforming work and creating new challenges and new opportunities for women. Okay, thank you so much to you for that. I sort of wanted to go back a little bit to what we mentioned about the pandemic and sort of uh, how this has changed the structure and processes of workplaces and how businesses have responded and treated their employees. So we know that there were some regressive effects of the pandemic on gender equality. So how have these effects shifted in the last few years since the pandemic started? And what are the new challenges that we're facing now in the post-pandemic world? I think one of the biggest challenges that actually predates COVID but was exacerbated by COVID is what we call unpaid care work. And unpaid care work is work that you do for no pay for people other than yourself, right? So shopping, cooking, cleaning, taking care of kids, taking care of parents, taking care of in-laws. And around the world, women do about three times as much unpaid care work as men. And in many countries across Asia, that number is quite a bit higher, right? So in India, it's about nine times as much. In the United States, for instance, it's more like two times as much. So lots of variability country by country. And what we saw during COVID as countries shut down and there was frankly just a lot more unpaid care work, right? Many people were eating at home much more than before. A lot of schools were either moved online or done much more with parental guidance at home the unpaid care work that needed to be done just increased overall. And if you add to that, that it was unevenly done before COVID, we just exacerbated some of those gaps. And so the combination of that plus additional mental health challenges, just more stress and pressure during COVID, you put all of that together and the baseline was uneven and the impact of COVID was even more uneven. And so we saw those gaps 
across unpaid care work, across mental health, across many of these areas exacerbated and widened during COVID. And so the challenge now is some countries have seen more women step out of the workforce during COVID than others, not all countries, but in some countries. And how do we sort of regain that ground that we've lost from a workplace and an economic perspective, but also from women's leadership perspective in the workplace, in society, and more broadly? Because the uneven impact of COVID, again, was something that that was quite striking. This whole combination of women having to spend more time on unpaid care work and also women being in the kinds of occupations that were most severely hit by COVID. So things like face-to-face customer service and sales or food service and hospitality. Many of these occupations just were under extreme stress during COVID. And we found that on average, based on data from the US and India, that on average, women were in jobs that were almost two times more likely to have suffered job losses during COVID than men were. And while women accounted for about 39 to 40% of employment globally, their share of job losses was significantly higher, over 50%. So it's been a little bit of the two steps forward, one step back type of scenario or progression for women in the face of COVID. And there is a real opportunity. So on the positive side, I would say that one of the things that COVID has made much more mainstream, much more acceptable, is the norm of more flexibility at work, hybrid work, remote work-based models. And they bring new opportunities because it is just now more normal to negotiate that at work, to have some days in which you can work flexibly in your own location or at your own pace. And earlier, it was not normal to ask for these things. Typically, only women might have asked for these things, but it's become much more the norm with COVID. And that we see as a positive. But as Quaylen talked about issues of burnout and isolation and struggling a little bit to really build networks in an environment that uh, has a lot more independent work and, in a sense, less well-connected workplaces, It's just harder for women to build those relationships, build those networks, and get on with what they need to do in order to keep progressing and advancing at work. So I think there are opportunities that COVID has brought that were perhaps undreamt of earlier, but also these kinds of challenges that employers are going to have to be much more sensitive to and gear themselves for. Yes, thank you for that. And I mean, we throughout the comments that you've both made, it's become quite clear that the role of businesses in uh, sort of supporting gender equality has shifted in the last few years. And you've mentioned some of the opportunities and what else can businesses do to better support women leaders to ensure that they have the opportunities to excel, the opportunities to thrive, and also that they're recognized for a lot of the work that maybe they're not being recognized for currently. I think what COVID did was erase in many cases that boundary or dividing line between the personal and the professional. And you saw much more of people's whole life. And so challenges that may have been considered mother or woman's challenges became sort of everybody's challenges that we all have to manage. And I think this is one of those cases where a rising tide can lift all boats. It can be better for women and men at work because we can be more balanced and supportive overall. So what can companies do to better support, I would say, women and men in this return beyond COVID? I think a few things. The global diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders that we see when we look around the world do a few things. 
Most importantly, they treat DEI efforts as business initiatives, right? These are long-standing gaps that have been centuries in the making, and we're not going to erase them through a very short-lived couple of years of effort or a, an initiative off the side of somebody's desk. It's going to take concerted effort, real diagnosing of the problem. Where are the pinch points across the talent pipeline? Real resourcing by a business leader, a visible and you know powerful business leader who can unblock challenges, resource it effectively. It will also take a real learning and iterative mindset. How do we learn, fail fast, but then also scale and adjust. Everything that you would do to grow a new line of business, to drive a business initiative is what it takes to drive diversity, equity, and inclusion at scale. And so I think the more that companies treat DEI as part of the business, not just as something that you do on the side, but in a critical way of the how you get to the results, then I think we're going to be effective. The companies that do this best both set an aspirational target, right? Where do we want to get to in terms of gender, ethnic, other diversity? And they define diversity broadly, frankly. And then they get very accountable at the line of business level, at the geography level, specifically, what is your starting point and where are you going to get to go? And then how do we systematically drive the execution of the initiatives that are going to get us there? I think that business-oriented mindset of accountability and let's talk about how we're making progress every step along the way is critical. And it can't be a separate conversation from your business results. It must be at the same time, right? What you've achieved and how have you achieved it? And I think the conversation is moving and has to move even faster towards dimensions of both creating an inclusive work environment, as well as helping women build their skills and human capital. And both of these are as critical or perhaps even more critical than managing representation in a way that is more fair and more equitable. I think the starting point is managing representation and getting diversity right at all levels in the organization, particularly in Asia, for instance, we see big drop-offs that occur quite early in one's career. So right from lower rates of enrollment for women in tertiary education and therefore a lower intake of women but then very significantly when it comes to the first promotion or the first managerial role or the first role that involves, let's say, relocating to another place, those are some of the typical drop-off points. And it's really important for companies to really think about what's it going to take, the pinch points as well, and call them, what's it going to take for us to address those pinch points in terms of the sheer numbers. But then beyond the numbers, we come to creating an inclusive environment and really helping women build skills because these are critical to really harness women and make them be successful exemplars. And it is more and more successful examples of women who are able to take on roles of greater responsibility, are able to lead in positions of leadership, able to lead in profit center positions, not just support functions. It is more and more of the examples like this that boosts the conviction in the organization that this is important for business, this is core to delivering sort of results in business, and it builds allies and stakeholders across the spectrum, then, including men in the organization. So creating those conditions are very critical. We see technological change is proceeding so rapidly that the very nature of what one's job is changes year to year. 
and it's going to be more and more important for women to be able to learn how to work with those new technologies and also manage to make the time and take some risks to try out new types of job roles where they're stretching themselves, they're doing things that they weren't doing before in order to be successful. And this is a little harder for women because women are typically, they face what's called time poverty because there are so many other demands on their time, particularly from all of the family and other care responsibilities that they shoulder. And so with time poverty, it's very hard to actually carve out the time to learn new things or to take the risk of trying out a new job role when you know that you may not have done some of what that role demands. But creating a supportive environment in which women can exercise these choices is going to be critical if we are to reverse the two steps forward, one step back, and actually make that a much more positive story of opportunities opening up and women actually being able to take advantage of them. I think one of the things that's striking in Asia, but frankly, globally, is that women are now outperforming men academically, right? In most developed countries, women get the majority of tertiary degrees, not in every country, but most fully developed countries. That's true in China, for example. But then, as Anu described, that first promotion to manager, we typically see a bit of drop off. And then every single level to senior manager, to vice president equivalent, all the way up to direct reports to the C-suite or executive board positions, we see drop off at every single level. And I think the challenge is if you step back from education versus the workplace, what we see globally is that half of a person's lifetime earnings are due to education, where women tend to be doing quite well, and half of their lifetime earnings are due to skills, experience, and what they learn on the job. And that's where I think women are not maximizing the returns to their experience, the returns to their work, because they're not jumping to new responsibilities. They're not stretching themselves in new ways. For example, in some of the North American data that we looked at over the years, if you talk to two vice presidents, a man and a woman who were just promoted, typically the man has been in his previous role for four years and the woman has been in her previous role for seven years, right? So women are stagnating across the organization, staying in role for longer and not getting the advancement, but also not getting the returns to their skills experience and work experience that their male colleagues are. And that's a really important point that Quillen just made, because when we studied data, and this includes some Asian economies as well, when we looked at the data of individual career trajectories and traced who were the people in the workforce who ended up being more successful, who were able to lift themselves to higher and higher levels of productivity and pay, it really was people who managed to make these role moves more frequently. This doesn't necessarily mean leaving your organization and moving to another company, but it does mean taking on a new role that challenges you in new ways and demands you to do new things. And those who did that more frequently were actually more successful, including in terms of their lifetime earnings. So there are very, very big implications for both individuals as well as companies in helping create the conditions in which women can actually challenge themselves in these new ways. And they're totally up to it. If you look at a within-company data across the spectrum of industries, you find that women are totally up to the challenge. They actually do very well at each of these levels when they take on these challenges, but it's about helping more of them do that. It's about helping them do that at scale and not having that to be more of the exception than the norm. 
So what do you believe will be the impact of automation and reskilling on women and the opportunities that they will have moving forward? Angela, I think the interesting thing is we saw long-term trends in automation pre-COVID. And COVID simply accelerated a lot of that, had a very strong impact on some of the specific occupations that Anu mentioned around customer service and sales, around production and manufacturing, around office support roles, for example. And so in many cases, it was sort of doubly impacting many of the same roles. And as we look forward, I think we're all going to need a lot more of two broad types of skills. One is socio and emotional skills, and the other is technological skills. And let me describe each of those in a bit more depth. Socio emotional skills is can I read a human interaction and react appropriately, right? Can I show empathy? Can I sort of build a relationship, build trust? Things that a robot can't do very well. The technical skills isn't necessarily can I code, but can I interact with technology effectively? Can I monitor a system and when there's a red flashing light, follow the instructions to replace a part or substitute a filter or whatever it might be? And those two skills, because of the things that will be automated away and better done at scale through machine learning or automation, those skills are things that all of us are going to need more of in the future. Interestingly, I think women are very well positioned on these socio and emotional skills, right? That's typically something that may come more naturally. Now there's a broad variation and a distribution that is largely overlapping, but in general, I think women are well-placed and well-positioned for socio and emotional skills. On the technological side, I think that's where the time poverty that Anu was mentioning will be important. In order to be open to learning new skills, upskilling, reskilling, taking advantage of that within your current employer, going outside your potential employer to learn those skills, those things will be increasingly important to stay at the cutting edge of what's going to be needed over this next 10 to 20 years. And the numbers of women globally and in Asia who will need to move through this process of reinvention, of learning how to work with technology and transforming what they do, perhaps moving into different types of occupations. So you might have started work, let's say, as a legal aid assistant, but you end up learning how to maintain a database and you become ultimately a data analyst of some kind. So that kind of reinvention or transformation is what is going to be called for over one's lifetime because of these rapid changes in the nature of work and the new kinds of occupations that will come into demand. And we think that globally, Anywhere between 40 and 160 million women, that's a wide range, but it really does depend on how fast technology disrupts key occupations. And that's sort of the order of magnitude of reskilling, upskilling and deployment into new kinds of work and new kinds of occupations that we're really talking about. And every single country in Asia is going to also have to do this as we go forward. Koylan and Anu, what worries you about the future of gender parity in Asia and what are you hopeful for moving forward? I think what concerns me is a lot of the elements that we've talked about so far, the impact of COVID and impending climate change, right? What we know is that climate change around the world will disproportionately affect poor areas, will disproportionately affect women in some of the transitions that need to be made. And the challenge and exacerbation of gaps that were pre-COVID being worsened during COVID also worries me. So there's a lot of transition, a lot of change, a lot of challenges that we will be getting through over the next decade. 
the thing that gives me hope is resilience. And women are incredibly resilient as you look across Asian countries. They're also incredibly entrepreneurial. And Anu mentioned kind of the even disproportionate share of entrepreneurship on the internet side of things versus offline businesses. But across the board, women are incredibly entrepreneurial across Asia. For example, self-made female billionaires in China has the majority of them globally. But even more broadly than China across Asia, I think there's such exciting women's entrepreneurship and resilience in these challenging times that I think it gives me a lot of hope. That's a a tough one to follow, but let me try. I think what concerns me is when we study the macro picture or the macro numbers over years, it feels like things don't change as fast as you want them to change. Something like labor force participation rate. So of the total population of women, how many are in work for which they are paid, which is considered part of the paid economy. And there you find that that number struggles to increase at a macro level, although it's encouraging that in some countries this has moved quite rapidly. But some of these macro indicators are slow to move. But on the other hand, I think what encourages me and what I'm optimistic about is that in Asia in particular, the demographic is, it's interesting, there are parts of Asia which are still quite young. We are seeing a lot of social change and attitudinal change that's coming with more and more well-educated young women entering the workforce and having aspirations and ambitions. And you can see some of this societal change just in the way, if you look at advertisements or if you look at movies or popular culture, you will see a sort of shift in attitudes very apparent. So I think in parts of Asia, the young demographic plays a strong role in making that happen. I think technological change being so rapid and the population being so open and embracing technology, the China example, the Indonesia e-commerce examples that we have seen and talked about. I think those, again, are very inspiring. Asia is very vibrant, very dynamic. The digital economy is growing so rapidly in most of Asia that this is opening up again new opportunities and actually demolishing barriers that have traditionally come in the way of women, for example, accessing credit to set up their own businesses or struggling because they can't break into an old boys network to sell what they're producing. But with e-commerce, that's possible. And the way Asia's digital economy is changing, I think, has very, very profound positive implications for the cause of gender equality as well. One theme we've talked a little bit about, but I think is worth exploring more deeply, is around technology. And McKinsey Global Institute has classified 14 different types of technology that we think will be shaping the future. Everything from cloud computing to artificial intelligence to Web 3.0. And historically, over the last decade or couple of decades, a lot of the technological advances have been within a particular technology, right? So within cloud computing, and we all know Moore's Law and think about that when we think about the pace of acceleration in technology. But going forward, I think the next decade of advancement in technology will actually be the combination of technologies. So it will be artificial intelligence combined with cloud computing and other pieces, right? And ChatGPT is, I think, a perfect example of that. And so as we think about development, economic development, opportunities, new areas of jobs, ensuring that women have a seat at the table in technology, in these key technologies, particularly as they're combining and driving a lot of future growth will be really important. 
As you look at gender equality around the world, one thing that came from the power of parity research that Anna and I led together was that there are some gaps around the world that we expect to improve as GDP per capita increases, right? So as levels of development improve, countries naturally grow their way out of these gaps. These are what we call regional impact zones. They will likely improve on their own. Now, we can do things to accelerate that progress, but we expect to grow our way out of these problems. These are things like maternal and reproductive health gaps in sub-Saharan Africa, unequal education levels in India, South Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, or financial and digital exclusion where women don't have as much access to bank accounts, to cell phones in India, South Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East and North Africa, for instance. Those gaps we expect hopefully relatively quickly as GDP per capita improves to grow our way out of. But there's another set of gaps, though, that are global in nature. And as countries increase their standard of living, we don't grow our way out of those problems. And unless there's a concerted effort to address these gaps, they will be persistent challenges and stop us both from improving in gender equality, but also from capturing the economic opportunity that we were talking about. And this ranges from fewer legal rights and protections under the law to political underrepresentation to violence against women. One out of two women around the world experience violence from an intimate partner to time spent in unpaid care work. We talked about the three to one global average, blocked economic potential or lower levels of formal workforce participation. These are the global gaps that unless there is concerted effort, we will not improve. We will not simply grow our way out of these challenges. Thank you so much, Quaylen. That's been a lot of content that is very, very interesting. And as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about this executive push that I think was addressed in the research that we released. This idea that a lot of change in most cases is actually starts at the top and it kind of trickles down. So maybe to kind of tie what we're talking about a little bit to CEO leadership, what can CEOs do to help move the needle on diversity and inclusion? I think as leaders at every level, but starting from the top, it's really important to be visible champions of gender equality throughout the organization and in one's own teams. And for many men in these roles, I think a big part of this is to normalize the what it is like to have work-life balance, to normalize the fact that you do have family responsibilities. And just by living those values yourself, I think that translates and conveys a lot and people in the organization watch out and actually learn through that process. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is, I think, to very concretely embed a set of goals to support that overall philosophy and a set of processes and practices that promote and enable the movement towards greater diversity and, and inclusion. So it's not just statements of intent, but it is also backed up by very concrete practices to de-bias at every level and to create enablement for people throughout the organization, to boost autonomy, to boost the capacity of people to collaborate with each other all in a very de-biased and fair and equitable way. So I think this is the critical ask for people at every stage, whether in the C-suite or all the way down to team managers and team supervisors, for example. Indeed. I think CEOs can do a number of things to foster better diversity. One, they can set an aspirational target and be public and open about that. Two, they can drive accountability across all areas of the organization. 
And third, they can talk about the diversity and the how in the same way and at the same time as they talk about business results, right? It's not a separate effort. It's the how of the what you're achieving. And I think the more CEOs role model true thoughtful inclusiveness, the better off we'll be, right? So it's not just a narrow of leadership styles that's successful at the organization, but we're broadly inclusive and accepting of lots of different styles, lots of different backgrounds. I've seen some leadership teams actually very closely have different profiles of leaders show up and be visible so that people understand you don't have to be just a certain way or a very narrow type of leadership style to be successful here. And I think the more people look up and around and see broader sets of successful leadership styles, the better off we are. It's important to remember that about 70% of employees are typically at that entry level, right? So the vast majority of workers are at entry level. And as you go up in levels, it's only a few percent that are at each of those more senior levels. And so how do we personify, how do we role model inclusiveness all the way down to frontline entry level workers, I think is really important for CEOs. I think ultimately it is really important as well for CEOs and business leaders to acknowledge that this is really important for business, for business performance, for business results, but also ultimately for growth itself. We are at a tipping point in terms of demographics, looking out ahead for the next one or two decades, we will be in a position that global growth could as much as halve over the next few decades unless productivity dramatically jumps up. And that's because population growth has slowed down and will continue to slow down in many parts of the world. So unless we really harness this hidden asset, women today who either are not in the workforce or are in the workforce but are not able to operate at their optimal productivity, this is a limiting factor for growth. And that means it's a limiting factor for corporate performance, as well as for broad-based prosperity around the world. As we look around the world, about half of companies, and this is based off data in the US and UK, but I think it's actually largely representative, about half of companies don't actually make progress over a five to 10 year period on gender equality. They sort of tread water and try to place the gender equality that they've lost. And so the question is, how can companies, how can CEOs and other leaders be in that top half of companies that actually are making progress and ideally much faster progress than their peers? Thank you, Quaylen and Anu, for joining us today on the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you for having us, Angela. Thank you. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.